Loving Father, you have given us here at college and you've given this college many wonderful gifts. We pray that you would this morning give us humility and a contrite spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Well, friends, the question that we're asking this morning is, do you think you're awesome? Last week, I called you a bunch of losers, but today I'm asking, did you really take that on board? Do you think that you're a loser, or did you hear what I said and think, well, actually, I'm pretty awesome? Uh, I have to confess that for a long time, there was a voice, a quiet voice in the back of my head that would softly and continually say to me, Tom, you're awesome. Uh, It had its advantages. There's nothing like an indestructible sense of self-confidence to get you ahead in life. It was uh, definitely annoying to my wife because um, even when she was telling me off, no matter what she said, I had this uncanny ability to pick up on the one good thing that she said about me, and that was my take-home from the conversation. Um, Yeah, I really had this voice. I, I, I sort of, looking back now, I kind of wish we did IMR when I was at college, I think it would have been really helpful for me. A bit of self-awareness, a bit of self-reflection would have been good. Needless to say, I've repented, genuinely, I've repented of this belief in my awesomeness. But I don't think it's that uncommon. I'm guessing I'm not the only one with that voice, maybe especially here at college. And even if you are someone who doesn't have that voice, who doesn't think that they're awesome, I think it's very easy to still get a sense of importance, a sense of power, by attaching yourself to someone who you think is awesome. Maybe it's a minister at church, a leader in your denomination, maybe even someone here at faculty. It doesn't have to even be someone that you know personally. It could just be a prominent figure in the Christian world that you align yourself with and you You feed off their awesomeness. Maybe you feel a little inadequate, you feel a little powerless, you feel not that wise, but when you look to them, it makes you feel wise, it makes you feel strong, it makes you feel good about yourself. Their awesomeness becomes your awesomeness. I think this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. Uh, We're reminded again in today's passage, they were puffed up in being a follower of one leader against another. And Paul has really been trying to deal with this pride of the Corinthians for for the past four chapters. And he gets to this point here in chapter four and he says, okay, let's just stop for a moment and think about these leaders that you are worshipping. Let's think about these leaders that you are idolising so much, including me, Paul. Let's just get the right perspective on how we really should consider our leaders. And so in this chapter, Paul turns to himself and to the other leaders of the church and says, this is how you should really think about us. This is how you, to use the language of verse 1, how you ought to regard us. And so we see three things that Paul wants us to know about himself and the other leaders of the church. First, Paul is a servant... Second, Paul is a loser. And third, Paul is a father. First, Paul is a servant. Paul begins by urging the Corinthians to see himself 
and the other leaders as simply attendants. They are assistants who work for God and do his work. So have a look at verse 1. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, Paul's point is pretty clear here. If leaders are servants of Christ, if they are stewards or managers of the mysteries of God, then who does a leader answer to? They don't answer to the people in front of them. They don't answer to anyone, in fact, except for the person that they're working for. They answer to God. God is their boss. And so they answer to him. Now, we need to be careful here. Because does this mean that actually we don't need to care about what other people think of us? I can see uh, Grimo smiling right now. You know, the, the next time someone at church questions you, can you just say, well, look, God is my judge, not you. <laughs> you know, in the next IMR session, when Grimo asks you, how do you think other people might have felt about what you did? Can you say to him, pull out 1 Corinthians 4 and say, well, actually, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. No. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> what is Paul saying then? I think it's pretty clear that he's not saying that. And the evidence is found later on in the chapter because he says that he's going to come to Corinth and when I come, I better not be carrying a stick. In other words, there is a time for human judgment. There is a time when someone can call out leaders of the church and say, actually, what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that we're never accountable as ministers of the gospel. What is he saying? We have to remember the situation that the Corinthian church are in. They are being puffed up in being a follower of one apostle over against another. See, they're in a church context where they're worshipping, they're idolising their leaders. It's making them feel powerful. It's making them feel strong. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Cephas. And it's into that situation that Paul says in verse 5, look, hold off on your judgment. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. See, Paul is saying to a church that is obsessed by its leaders, it's not really for you to judge. There is a day set aside for judgment, but it's not our judgment. It will be God who judges leaders, not you. So maybe hold off on this adulation until then. It's not you who get to judge, it's God. He will judge on the last day, not only because leaders answer to God, but also because God alone sees the heart. God is the only one who sees what you are really like as a leader in God's church. Did you notice verse 5? He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. That is a very important passage for anyone going into ministry. 
It reminds me of Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. The end of the psalm. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, God is the only one that we answer to because God is the only one who really knows what you're like. And so on the last day, it's God who praises. You notice that at the end of verse 5. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Isn't that what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount? Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think this changes the way that we should think about our leaders. We should not idolise our leaders. Why? Well, because they are mere servants of God. They answer to God. God alone sees their hearts and motives. And it's God alone who praises on the last day. I think it's fair to say that one of our weaknesses here as evangelicals is that we love our heroes. We love our personalities, don't we? I remember once going along to a conference that was for ministers, and we had a very well-known American preacher come to speak about church planting. Now, he was a good guy, he spoke really well, and he was really encouraging, but he was from the Bible Belt of America, and so at question time, someone said, well, well what about people who are planting churches in really hard ground? You know, sh should we expect the same sort of fruit from them? And he was very gracious and he told us about his friend that he went to seminary with. And he said, look, I went to seminary with my friend. He was better at all the subjects than me. He was a smarter guy than me. He's a better evangelist than me. He's a better church planner than me. But he's doing ministry in Ireland and he's seeing very little fruit because it's very hard ground. I thought, oh, that's really humble, you know. He, he's, he's saying, look, there are people who are better than me out there, but they're in hard ground. Next question. Who's your friend? And when will he come and speak at this conference? <laughs> it was pretty cheeky. But you get the point. Because we wouldn't invite him, would we? Why? Because no one would come to the conference. How do you get people to come to a big conference? You invite a big name. How do you get a Christian book published these days? You have hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. These are our heroes, the ministers that have hundreds of people, thousands of people coming to our churches, the, the preachers who are the most engaging or the most charismatic, the thought leaders who have a huge reach and influence over people. We lift these people up, don't we? I think there's a particular word here for us then, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. We have been very disappointed in some of our heroes lately, haven't we? Whoever it might be that you're tempted to idolise, remember that they don't answer to you. They answer to God. He will judge on the last day. He sees the heart and he knows their true motives. 
Well, we've seen that Paul is a servant. Secondly, Paul is a loser. I keep saying this, but it's in the Bible, so I have to keep going back to it. I said last week you were losers. Well, you can be comforted by the fact that you're in good company. Paul self-identifies as a loser in this chapter. And in the next bit of our passage, he contrasts the Corinthians' view of themselves with what he is like. So the Corinthians, they see themselves as having everything. They're rich, they're reigning, they're puffed up, they're proud. They think that they are strong and they are wise. But what does Paul say about himself and the other apostles? Have a look at verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Paul takes us to the amphitheatre. Where are the Corinthians? Well, they're in the stands. They're drinking, they're laughing, they're having a great time, they're celebrating the victory and the power that they have. But then Paul says, well, where are the apostles? They're not in the stands with the Corinthians. They're down in the arena. They're the ones that everyone is laughing at, that everyone is scoffing at. They are the ones at the end of the program condemned to die. Paul goes on, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. So the Corinthians are polar opposites to the apostles. But did you notice what God said in verse 9? Have a look. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display. See, the the world, they might be in the stands watching, laughing, scoffing, but it's actually God who put them there in the first place. And like any performance, God put them there in the arena for everyone to watch. Not just us, but the entire cosmos, both people and angels. God is the producer, he's the author, he's the director of the show. He's staging this production of the apostles and their extreme suffering, humiliation and death. Why? Why does God put that show on for us to watch? Well, it's because through the apostles' suffering, just like Jesus' suffering, God gives us a picture of authentic Christianity. The Corinthians, they thought that Christianity was all about being powerful and wise, being important, being honoured. The Corinthian church was a prosperity church. You know, they're a triumphalist church. Their aim was to be on top of the world, to be esteemed by others, to have influence in the corridors of power, to be culture changers, thought leaders. But when you put their vision of Christianity up against Paul's experience and the experience of the other apostles, you see how far apart they are from authentic Christianity. The apostles' suffering is there for us to watch so that we can learn what true wisdom is, what true power is. And we can see 
that God works through rejection and hatred, weakness, foolishness, shame, dishonour for his servants. In the Heidelberg Disputation, Martin Luther outlined what has now come to be known as his theology of the cross. I'm nervous to talk about Luther in front of a Luther expert. Is that right, Mark? It was Heidelberg Disputation? Yep, great. Okay. <laughs> uh, Luther distinguished between two types of theologians. There was the theologian of glory and there was the theologian of the cross. And he said, the theologian of glory, well, that's a person who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible by the world. So he or she, they expect God to be revealed in worldly power, in worldly wisdom. But the theologian of the cross knows better because the cross has fundamentally changed the way they understand God and how he acts in the world. Because through the cross, the shameful cross, the weak cross, the foolish cross, God has saved. And so the theologian of the cross knows that it's not through worldly power and strength that God works, but through shame, through suffering, through weakness, and through foolishness. I think it's worth taking a moment to think about how you see your ministry or the ministry of those that you look up to. Are you looking as a theologian of glory or as a theologian of the cross? Where would you place your ministry? Is it in the stands with the Corinthians or is it down in the arena with Paul. Well, very quickly, we've seen that Paul is a servant, Paul is a loser. Lastly, Paul is a father. In verse 14, Paul says, I'm writing not to shame you, but to warn you as dear children. He says, you may have 10,000 guardians, but not many fathers. I am your father through the gospel. Why does Paul say that he's their father? Well, no doubt because he loves them. He loves them and he cares for them. He's given birth to them in one sense as he's brought the gospel to them. And I think also because he's willing to discipline them. We'll see that later on. But I also think that one reason is is because as a father, Paul wants the Corinthians to imitate him. I mean, that's what sons are meant to do, isn't it? They're meant to imitate their fathers. And this is why he sends Timothy. He says that he's sending Timothy to remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. See, Timothy is to model to them the Christian life, just as Paul modelled it to him. That's what Paul instructs Timothy in his letter to him. Set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We see here that the task of a church leader is not only to speak the gospel, but to live the gospel so that the flock will imitate them as they imitate Christ. Church leaders are fathers who are to be models to their sons. I think this is very important for us to stand because here at Moore College, we are right on about handling the Word of God well, aren't we? And, and rightly so. We come out of college wanting to make sure that we will be good teachers. But you must come out ready to be good models. Not just someone who teaches the word, but who lives the word. Uh, I started MTS around the P 
peak of Driscoll mania. Uh, this should date me, but before I came to college, I was listening to talks I downloaded and burnt onto CDs, put into my car on the way up to Katoomba to kickstart, not kick. Uh, I've, I've got to say, I was into Driscoll before he was cool. Um, <laughs> and Driscoll's preaching had a really big impact on me. It probably played a part in me going into ministry. And so listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, it was, it was actually quite a personal experience for me. Um, there were many helpful lessons to take away from that podcast. But one thing that I think perhaps the podcast downplayed just a bit was that Driscoll, especially early on, uh, was quite a good teacher. He would give one, one and a half hour sermons and he would show you the difference between expiation and propitiation. He would talk about Calvin, he would talk about Augustine, he would go quite deep into the text. He got a bit wacky later on, but in those early days, he was quite a good teacher. And a lot of guys my age were really drawn to that good teaching. I think we downplay his ability as a teacher to our peril because while he certainly had issues in what he taught, I think one of the problems was that his character often didn't match his teaching. You know, he could teach a theology of the cross but not live it, not model it. For him, it was all about being tough and being strong, being powerful, conquering the city for Christ. It was a very Corinthian way of understanding Christianity. Driscoll was very big on men needing good father figures, but in my opinion, he was a bad father. He was a bad role model. And there was a generation of Christian guys, including myself for a while, who imitated him. And so friends, we don't need leaders who are awesome. We don't need leaders who are strong or powerful or impressive, we need leaders who will model Christ, who we can imitate, like Paul. Well, this chapter ends with Paul saying that he's going to visit Corinth soon, and then we'll see what sort of leaders these guys really are, what sort of church Corinth really is. I want to leave you with a thought experiment. How would you feel if Paul visited you and your church? Would he need to come with a rod of discipline or could he come with, in love and with a gentle spirit? Let's pray. Loving Father, we are so drawn to big names and big personalities, to leaders that are charismatic and impressive and powerful and wise. Help us to be drawn to Christ and to those who imitate him. Amen.